Hello and welcome to the Coffee and Book Podcast. I'm your host, Scott. I'm going to do the best I can today. I'm going to apologize up front now. I am feeling a little bit under the weather, but I wanted to bring this podcast to you. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, we're going to talk today a little bit about uh, the book that I just recently finished. It's called The Last Cabalist of Lisbon and my experience in Portugal and traveling. Um, thankfully, I did not have COVID. I've tested for COVID multiple times. Um, I just think this is just something that I picked up on the way home. But uh, outside of that, let's talk about my experience in Portugal first before we get into the book, The Last Cabalist of Lisbon. So I recently went on a vacation to Portugal, and I managed to go to a few different places. I was on a group tour through a company called Gate One. Uh, Gate One, if you don't know, has a website, helps run tours. They're really good. I enjoyed their tour very much. And I wanted to put that out there. So if you're looking to travel, one way of doing that is going by yourself and another is going with a group. This was a group tour. Uh, they kind of pre-planned everything. So we went to the following cities. Uh, we went to Lisbon. I went to Porto. Uh, we went to Tamar, Evra, and Coimbra. Uh, all of which are fantastic cities and unique in their own individual way. I'm going to talk a little bit about each of them now. Uh, so Lisbon is the capital. That's where I started the trip. Uh, Lisbon is really cool because there's a lot there there is to see and do there. It's the main hub of Portugal. Um, they have a smaller airport, so it took me a little bit of time to get there. I had to take about four flights. Uh, but when I was there, um, it was beautiful. Um, there was a Christmas market, which was my first ever Christmas market I ever went to. Um, there was a lot of uh, people uh, you know, it was raining, like almost biblically so, it was so much rain. It was the most rain they've had in 50 years, so that's something to it. But, uh, you know, the streets were beautiful, a lot of beautiful old buildings, churches, uh, cobblestone roads. You know, this the city is very old, and uh, Portugal has a unique history because, you know, me, I love my history. It goes back to you know, different people who were there over thousands of years ago, and not just the Portuguese and Spain. But, you know, you have the Romans, you have the Carthaginians, you know, which are the precursors of Roman. And then before that, you know, you had different people who lived there. And so there's always been people in the Iberian Peninsula where Spain and Portugal are. Um, and so it's, it's pretty cool. It's just, it's just fascinating to see that, like, there's a lot of UNESCO World Heritage Sites. Um, Portugal is a very nice country. It's very small. So, you know, most people have a car and travel around very easily. A majority of people live in the cities. Um, you know, their number one export is cork. So, you know, cork being the stopper you would find most commonly in wine glasses. But a lot of people take cork and turn it into different products like wallets and belts and fashion products like, you know, outfits. So that's pretty cool. Hats, stuff like that. Uh, the food in Portugal is very good. It consists of primarily seafood, but there's also their own unique sausages, their own unique sandwiches. Um, cheese and egg are basically in everything. At one point, my wife ordered a tomato soup, and that came on the side with an, a boiled egg and sausage that was supposed to go in tomato soup, which is something that was really unique. Um, and uh, yeah, Lisbon was pretty cool to see because we were there during the World Cup and we got to see people rooting for Portugal who was in it. Uh, so, you know, it's a big soccer tournament for those of you who don't know. 
and it just finished yesterday with Argentina winning. So uh, a lot of people in Portugal were rooting for Argentina, but a lot of people there, of course, while Portugal was in it, were rooting for Portugal. So that was pretty cool to see as well. Um, okay, so what did we do in Lisbon? Uh, you know, besides wandering around and seeing, you know, the sights, you know, we got to go to Sintra for today. And Sintra is a smaller kind of place that is like on uh, a little bit ways away from Lisbon, but it's its own unique place because it has a palace and it's where the Moors lived. Um, and they built like a place where, you know, people could go like a fortress, like that defended a town, you know, when Christianity and Islam ruled the Iberian Peninsula and were in conflict with one another, the Moors were a group of people that ended up uh, building fortifications inside of Portugal. So that was pretty cool to see. Um, the palace that we saw in Sintra was uh, a place that was commonly used for um, the dictator uh, that they had. They had a famous dictator named Salazar. Um, so that was interesting to see as well. Um, and we did things besides eat food. We, we tried different types of wines. We took a winery tour. Um, you know, we did things from going to these other towns. Like we went to Coimbra, which is most famous for being like a university town. Um, and Coimbra is famous for J.K. Rowling, uh, who taught English there and got a lot of her inspiration for the Harry Potter University, you know, like Hogwarts. It, a lot of its ideas came from inspiration directly from this university in Coimbra. Um, not only that, you also had um, like places like Evera, which showcased, uh, you know, like the Knights Templars fortifications. Uh, you know, Knights Templar being uh, people like soldiers who would defend pilgrims on the way to the Holy Land. And you got to see like monk monasteries and you got to see orange trees and, uh, you know, stuff like that. Um, and then in Porto, you know, you got to see the coast and, you know, we got to see everything from like the Atlantic Ocean to the rivers. Um, you know, we got to see in Porto um, like a, a box like cable car that was a nice ride. Um, you know, like I said, all the people we met were very friendly. Um, majority of them spoke basically English because they knew we didn't speak Portuguese, but uh, while Portuguese is the most common language, you can get by on English there. And uh, besides all that, it was a great time. It was a week long. I would highly recommend it. And while I was there, and in particular before this trip, I was inspired to read books specifically about Portugal. Um, so my wife's uncle is Portuguese through marriage, and so he told me a lot about Portugal and about what to try and what to see and what to do there. But also, I wanted to read for myself, in particular, books that describe the history um, of Portugal. And uh, I got, definitely got a crash course on that, which we're going to talk a lot about today. Um, mainly because I wanted to talk to you guys about, um, with Portuguese history, we have, you know, most famously, one of the defining moments was King Emmanuel, who reunited Spain and Portugal uh, through marriage. And in the act of doing so, one of the conditions was he had to allow the Inquisition into Portugal, uh, which is, of course, a very, very dark mark on Portuguese and Spanish history. Um, it is basically where the church took over, and essentially uh, anyone who wasn't, uh, you know, doing the normal thing, like it wasn't, as I should say, white and Christian, basically was prosecuted. You know, if you weren't basically following the Christian ways, 
and attending to the ways that they specified through direct parameters of the church, you were considered a heretic, and it was a whole thing. It, they tortured people. It was a horrible time in human history, but it's very famous for happening in Spain and Portugal. And so while I was there, I got to see some synagogues that were repurposed while I was there. Um, the Jewish population that was in Portugal and Spain, which was very famous, had to flee because of this. And so a lot of their buildings that they left, they left the way that they were at the time. And so I got to see some older synagogues um, that were basically the size of just a room, but, you know, they still exist. You know, these buildings that were from the 1400s still exist as if they're the same, uh, you know, like building today. Like, you know, you could go in there and you could take a tour. There are some that are repurposed as museums, but... You know, basically a church took over these buildings and then they became, when the church maybe abandoned them, they might have become like a farmhouse. So they might have become a place that people kept their, uh, you know, like a storage room, like that kind of thing. And uh, it's just interesting to see over time, like you go to these places and you wouldn't even think about it. You wouldn't, you would walk down the street and you would say, you know, that's just a normal building. But, you know, inside is a building from, you know, 600 years ago which is, you know, pretty interesting. So anyway, took lots of great photos, saw lots of monuments. Point is, is if you're considering ever visiting Portugal, Portugal is a wonderful place where the food is really good, the, the locals are friendly, and most importantly, it's rich with history. So like I said, I picked books in particular, and you might remember earlier, I picked an earlier book segment I talked about, um, where I read about the hills of Portugal. And, you know, I believe that was a, a famous book written by the same author who did Life of Pi. I personally did not like that one. It was an early description of Portugal in the early 1900s. Um, it was spooky. Um, I did not get a great feel of Portugal from that book. So I, I went in kind of blind. But during my stay while I was there, I started this book, which is called The Kabbalist of Lisbon. And now we're going to get into this book. So The Kabbalist of Lisbon is a book that came out in the 1990s, about 1996. Um, it's a fantastic book by Richard Zimler. And basically, this guy was a author slash teacher in Porto, in Portugal, uh, decided he wanted to be a writer and write about what inspires him. And he took his manuscripts, excuse me, and he took his manuscripts and he uh, tried to get his work published and nobody would publish it. And uh, eventually he got lucky and somebody took a chance on him and gave him that opportunity to publish this book. Um, it was a number one bestseller in Portugal. Um, and then it became published in other languages around the world. So, you know, you know, all across Europe and the United States, you know, this book started to get well known. Um, now, of course, since it's older, I hadn't heard about it. And uh, when many people ask about books specifically about Portugal, this is at the top of the list. My tour guide recommended this book. Um, and so that's another reason why I was already glad I was already reading it because, you know, when you ask for a book about a country and you want a great, great description of what the country was like, this is a good description of it. it. It describes Portugal in a way that I don't think it would be justice compared to other books. Okay. So we're going to talk a little bit about this here. We're going to go all the way back in the beginning. Um, it's based closely on the events of Lisbon and specifically the massacre of 1506, uh, the last Kabbalist of Lisbon is at its most accessible level, a locked room of mystery crossed with historical fiction regarding Jews in Portugal. 
In essence, this book is a murder mystery. It is about solving the murder of this Kabbalist's uncle. Kabbalism, if you don't know, is sort of Jewish mysticism. It is a offshoot of Judaism, uh, is best described as somebody who believes in the mysticism of Judaism. A lot of famous places in the world have Jewish Kabbalists. Um, in more recent times, many people know Kabbalism from Madonna and people who raised awareness to it. Um, although I am not a pra practitioner in that, I do know some things about Kabbalism, and I wanted to bring that up beforehand, that a lot of this story, although it is based loosely on real events, um, a lot of the magic and so-called spells that this person casts are not real. But they're just inspired by, um, you know, a sort of offshoot of mysticism, and it is to give you an, a sort of effect of how these people felt, um, in particular while being prosecuted. Um, you know, I think the author does a fantastic job of describing the villains of the story. But just to begin with, it's just to know it's about not necessarily Jewish people, but people in particular of across all different faiths of Judaism. And in particular, we're talking about Catholicism. Okay, next, we're going to talk about here another quote. The novel is narrated by Barakia Zarko, a 20-year-old Kabbalist and manuscript illuminator. During the clandestine Passover celebrations held by the secret Jews of Lisbon, an anti-Semitic pogrom breaks out, and Brekria returns home to find the door to the family cellar and his secret synagogue locked. Inside, he discovers the naked, bloody body of his uncle Abraham, his spiritual master. Barakai, sorry, I can't say his name right, Barakia, endeavors to identify the murderer with the help of his Islamic friend and soulmate, Farid. Although, as a Kabbalist interested in the symbolic nature of the world, he grows more interested in learning an underlying meaning of his uncle's murder for the family, the Jews of Lisbon, and all of humanity, and even for God. So, a lot to unpack there. What we're going to talk about now is this author had a lot of interesting concepts in this book. Uh, the first is that we mentioned that there's a soulmate, um, Farid. Uh, Farid being the sort of Muslim equivalent of this guy. They're best friends. Um, he's death. But, you know, the I guess a big concept of the book is that they have a sort of soulmate-like type friendship slash relationship. It is weird and hard to describe. I would almost argue that they were lovers, but that they're not, because uh, the main character actually is straight and ends up marrying, and uh, Farid ends up finding someone else in the end. Uh, but these two characters are sort of intertwined with each other's past and future, and they love each other very much. And it's, like I said, it's sort of gray to determine if like the main character is bisexual, uh, because in the story, they're so often close together, um, it's sort of not very clear to me if whether or not they actually did have a relationship. Um, I think in Judaism in particular during this time, um, and specifically for Islam, I think that something like this would have been how he either frowned upon or not talked about, or, you know, it's just something I feel like that was a plot point in this book. But I did want to mention the fact that I don't think either of these people would have been so open about their relationship with one another if they were actually gay. But again, it's kind of left up to the reader to decide, were they actually lovers or are they actually some, someone who's potentially interested in being together romantically or just friendship-wise? You get that throughout the story. 
Okay. So, um, you know, Barakia's family lives in one of Lisbon's oldest quarters, the Alfalma, and much of the action of the book takes place in this Jewish sort of headquarters. Um, one of the novel's key themes is self-sacrifice. Um, it's specifically known in Jewish law. Um, it's known as Maris, Marisrat Nefesh in Hebrew. So what does that mean? Uh, throughout the story, there's a lot of like people sacrificing themselves for the greater good. Um, what is the greater good? Well, uh, characters like to talk about that a lot. Um, some of the characters say that they've converted from Judaism to Christianity throughout the story. Um, and in fact, that's not really an option, as I like to call it. It's this sort of forced conversions. But a lot of the, for instance, rabbis, which we meet in the story, some of them convert to Christianity in order to save themselves. And they delude themselves into thinking that this is a self-sacrifice they're making to make the world a better place. You know, if they convert to Christianity, they'll, they'll save not only themselves, but their followers and all the people that they're worried about. Um, but throughout the story, we definitely get that every character, regardless of it's the murderer, the hero, the friends, um, you know, throughout the story, we kind of see that these people all have an idea of what self-sacrifice is. You know, sacrificing to save up money to get out of the country is a common thing that happens throughout the story. Um, in fact, in the beginning, the uncle and the main character have a, have a uh, very good heart-to-heart -heart about you know, what it is like living in Portugal and should they flee and go to another country and why they would do that. Um, but all of it comes down to one basic simple premise, which is being Jewish in this country is illegal at that time. Being anything other than Christian was illegal. And so throughout the story, you see that there were people who were forced to convert and you get to see the violence of the pogrom. You get to see the people and you get to see in particular the brutal, violent bloodshed that the Christians are pushing on the Jews, but um, in particular, it is heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking to see, uh, but there's a lot of people who sacrifice themselves so that way other people, maybe their family members, maybe their loved ones can live, and sometimes it's not even family or friends. Sometimes it's a complete stranger, as we'll soon find out. Okay, I'm moving on. Okay, here's a great quote from the book. God comes to each of us in the form we can best perceive him, uh, to you just now, he was a heron. To someone else, he might come as a flower or even a breeze. Um, and then this is a great quote specifically about the violence of the pogrom. Uh, Do you know what it means to look at a headless baby sitting in a shovel? It is, as, it is if all other languages in the world have been forgotten, as if all the books ever written have been given up to dust, and you are glad of it because such people as we have no right to speak or write or leave any trace of history. Uh, then we have a little description here of the synagogue of Tamar, which I visited. Uh, the synagogue is well-preserved medieval uh, synagogue in Portugal. It is alongside uh, the synagogue of Castelo de Vidi. It is one of two existing pre-expulsion synagogues in the country until 1496 when Jews were expelled from Portugal. Uh, purchased by Samuel Schwartz and turned into a museum. It saved countless Jews from the Holocaust. And in particular, one interesting fact about this place I like to bring up to people is that many people there had just converted in the 1400s to Christianity, but still practiced Judaism in secret. And so for hundreds of years, until the, 19, until the 1900s, when Samuel Schwartz, this Polish Jew who was fleeing the Holocaust, showed up, 
he noticed that these people were speaking Hebrew, or rather, they did things that were Jewish, but rather didn't know that they were actually Jewish. They just did things that they thought that's the way that their family did it. And so he convinced the Portuguese government to invest and save the synagogue and turn it as a place into a museum. Um, he actually bought the building and preserved it. And, you know, like I said in his will, he stated that it be turned into a museum so other people could see it. And most importantly, uh, you know, he helped other Jewish people flee the Holocaust. It granted him Portuguese citizenship. And, uh, you know, if you go to Portugal today, you can still see this building. Um, Portugal was also a way of exit for many people. Um, they were neutral during World War II. Uh, they assisted both sides. And, you know, most commonly, uh, they manufactured guns for the Germans and they uh, gave use of the Allies, such as the United States, military bases. Um, and so, like I said, they assisted both sides and benefited from it. And Portugal, in particular, was the way of escape for about 20,000 to 30,000 Jews to escape from the Holocaust. So there is some good there that the people did manage to get away. Um, it was a point where most of the people left Portugal and they went on to places such as the United States and Brazil, places in North and South America. And so that kind of wraps up the sort of basic summarizing and understanding of the book. Um, but now let's get into the plot point. So you have main character who is going out and trying to save, uh, rather, trying to discover the murderer of his uncle. He eventually discovers that his uncle is a smuggler. His uncle smuggles, of course, famous manuscripts. Um, going past this point, I will say it is a spoiler, so I will try not to ruin it for you. But if you're listening to this point forward, it probably is a spoiler for the story. Okay, so Uncle's a Smuggler is illuminating different manuscripts and smuggling them out to other countries. Uh, they're doing this for multiple reasons. One, so that Jewish literature survives. And two, because people will pay a very high price for it. And this money helps the Jewish people so they can bribe the local government. So that way they don't have to worry about uh, people who are arrested. Or like if a family member was arrested for being Jewish, then they could potentially bribe the government into letting them go, which we see in the storyline. Um, throughout the story, we see that, you know, the Christians basically treat the Jewish people in the story like vile dogs. Like, we see that throughout. But uh, one thing that this book has shown me is that people will find a way to come together, and there were Christians and non-Christians that worked together uh, for the purpose of saving other people um, in the story. And we see that. We see some of the people who discover, for instance, like we have a, a famous character who, I'm not going to get into the details, but I'll just say there was a famous uh, royal member of the sort of, not Portuguese royal family, but somebody who was in the court of nobility who discovered that he was actually born Jewish and that he was adopted into a family and raised as a Christian. But when he learned that he had Jewish roots, he spent a lot of his money and time saving the Jewish people. Um, in particular, he you know, gave people ways of income, he gave people ways to leave, he helped people in any way he could. Um, and it was just an interesting tidbit in the story, you know, like where the main character sits down and asks him, sitting across from him, he says, you know, would you have helped these people if you had known that you weren't Jewish? He says, I probably would not. You know, he says that I'm helping them because I discovered my identity. 
uh, that I am that way and that he wanted to help those people uh, because of that. And uh, that was just another interesting little tidbit of the book. Okay, so how does the story sort of end? Well, we find out that a close family member slash friend is responsible for the murder of his uncle. And the reason why this is, is because, plain and simple, he was worried about being exposed. He didn't want to be exposed by the church. He felt like his uncle was going to expose him uh, because he was turning people in for profit. And the uncle did not like that. And so when the uncle realized, of course, who he was, and these two people you know, met each other and they realized very quickly that, um, hey, you know, like, you know, this is somebody who could implicate me in a, a murder or, you know, different stuff like that. Uh, or, con- you know, false confessions, you know, it led to them fighting one another and basically having the uncle murdered. And, of course, throughout the series, we see a, a lot of inspiration from the beautiful architecture of the book. Um, you know, the buildings there are described very well. The scenes in Portugal and Lisbon are described very well. And I just want to wrap things up and say, I like this book. I gave it a three out of five. And I gave it a three out of five because of the following. Um, if you're interested in learning more about this sort of topic, you know, you're going to need to research about Portuguese history first. I felt like I went in sort of blind to the story. I liked it. I felt like I learned a lot. I felt like, you know, this was the best way to live inside of Portugal at that time. It was disturbing, to say the least. There's a lot of disturbing scenes. Um, you know, a lot of violence, a lot of rape and murder, a lot of sexual violence, and uh, I thought it was a bit much. I felt like I know that the author is trying to give a feel for what the time was actually like, and I just personally felt like the author went a little bit on deep end of describing some of these things, um, which I think could have been done in a way that I personally felt would be more tasteful. Um, You know, it's one thing to, for instance, describe somebody who's getting murdered, you know, in a story, especially a fictional historical story. Uh, But the way that this author does it, it's almost like that, you know, the author really enjoyed those scenes and describing them in detail. And while I'm sure the author is a nice person, I just felt like that was a little much, even for me, like I was reading this and at one point I had to set the book down because it's so violent. So if you're into violence and brutality... You'll probably be okay, but for the rest of us who are sort of, you know, not familiar with the subject of what the Inquisition did to, you know, people who were not Christian, this may make you a bit squeamish. So I'm going to throw that label on there. Um, And uh, yeah, I felt like, like I said, I gave it a three out of five because I enjoyed the ride, you know, for what it was. A book while I was in another country, I was reading it while I was there and reading it on the plane ride on the way home. And I felt like, hey, this is a cool book. You know, this is something that describes Portuguese history. It is a great introduction to Portugal. Um, But honestly, if you're not into history or you're not into, you know, knowing about this type of stuff, especially a dark, brutal past, maybe skip over this one. So like I said, three out of five, enjoyed it. Probably will not read it again. Uh, But I recommend it for those of you who like reading about Portuguese history. And uh, if you like today's episode on the podcast, uh, please feel free to share, uh, like this podcast, tell a friend. Um, Thank you for listening to me ramble about Portugal. 
Um, I got some more books coming up. I'm reading a book about Chernobyl right now. And uh, yeah, I'll keep you guys informed. Thanks for listening.